Well, it's been a historic year at Kingswood in many, many ways. Uh, one of the ways is, this is the first time that I know of, maybe someone can correct me on this, uh, this is the first time I know of in our history when Sony World Pictures has picked us to be the premiere for an international release of a major film. Anybody know? Historically, I think that's our first time, right? So that's a good thing. In fact, when I was a student here, I knew a student got sent home for three days for going to the movies. <laughs> so things have changed a little bit. That's all I can say. <laughs> things have changed a little bit. It's certainly been a historic year for our family. Uh, when I was uh, thinking about back over this year, I think about the wedding, certainly, for John and Lindsay, and we're excited they'll be back on campus. A lot of all the graduating students are returning next week, but uh, that's pretty historic for us. And this graduation will be fairly historic. We have four students uh, in our family who are graduating in the next six weeks. So there'll be John and Lindsay. We count her, right? She's our daughter in love. So we got uh, Lindsay. And we got JJ, and then uh, in high school graduation, Jordan's graduating. So for us, it's kind of a historic year. Uh, for many of you, uh, we just prayed over you. It's a historic year for you. You'll look back on this. You'll be the class forever or the class of 2014. For the rest of you, you've got one year closer, right, to that historic date. You're like one year closer, counting down. Uh, this is a historic year. We think about uh, the chapel being debt-free. Uh, it was back in 2005, I think, when ground was first broken, and then 2008 when they dedicated the chapel, and here we are, less than 10 years from groundbreaking, and it is paid in full, and we're all like, yay! But more importantly than that, this is a historic year as we went out and served uh, in an unprecedented way. We had served before in St. John. We got to do that again in the fall. Uh, Praxis has always been like the tip of the spear. They've been out doing this stuff, but every once in a while they let us get in on the action. Thanks, Professor McNeil. Uh, they let us get in on it, and they kind of coach us through and help us do that. And so we were all geared up two Wednesdays ago to go and serve New Brunswick. I think we had 19 or 20 teams and different sites from Fredericton and St. John and Moncton and here in town all set to go. And then guess what? Serve St. John came to us. Serve New Brunswick came to us as as the floodwaters rose and people turned to us and we got the phone call at 7.30 in the morning from the mayor saying, uh, would you be willing to serve us? And we're like, yes, <laughs> count us in. We're good to go on that. Uh, absolutely. So it's a historic year. Um, I think for all of us in, in marked ways, our lives have been shaped and changed. I hope you will. I know in some of the classes you've had a chance to reflect on the year, uh, certainly in these next couple of days as you're finishing up with your final projects, final exams. Uh, I hope you'll take some time to reflect on what God has done this year. And yes, I know there are a few people who are in relationships. So for you, it's a historic year too, right? Okay. Uh, so uh, anyway, moving right on from that. I, I was trying to think, what do you do? How do you, how do you wrap up? What's the last thing you want to say in a chapel? I mean, the last time we'll be together like this. And I, I just thought back to why it is we're here in the first place. Why are we here in the first place? And Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 9 are the ones that just kind of came back in my heart. In fact, I shared a little bit about this on Sunday when we were in Graham and Ann, but uh, it just came back to this touchstone. Why are we here anyway? We talk about this mission statement that we exist to equip Christ-like servant leaders for global impact, and it captures a lot of it, but really when you flesh it out farther, we exist to serve the church, we exist to serve the mission of God. We do that by training, preparing workers, laborers for the harvest, used to be the, the, the watchword and song. You, kind of find, uh, you can still find some apparel around. You'll see people with little crests on it, Matthew 9, 37, 38. Uh, and that's the truth. That's the truth. We're here because there is a harvest. And uh, I remember growing up working in harvest. How many of you ever worked in a harvest growing up? Anybody? Okay, what kind of harvest did you work in, Elizabeth? Corn. Corn. All right, corn harvest. Who else worked in a harvest? 
something different. You worked with a hay harvest. Okay, well, that's, that counts. So, yes, Brittany. Strawberry fields. All right, over here, Corey. Potatoes. Potatoes. What else did you harvest? Yes. Harvest lobsters. Oh, and we got to eat some lobster off the boat in Grand Manan on Saturday night. Oh, my. I th- that's the official training diet of that band I travel with, right? The old-timers crew. So, Samuel. Yes, sir. My brother-in-law's grandmother's garden. Good, that's good. What did you pull out of the garden, Samuel? Oh, <laughs> made a big impression. Okay, I forgot. Anybody else harvest something unusual? Yes. Blue- hey, blueberries, all right. I thought Brittany Trafton, uh, Professor Trafton, was going to say harvesting mink. I thought maybe that was another, yeah, possibility. I, I worked in the harvest fields. I did uh, down near Oxford, Nova Scotia, blueberry raking, did that. Oh, the end of a day, your back is so sore. And then I got to go down to Mississippi where I met my beautiful bride. And down in Mississippi, they grow cotton. Anybody wearing jeans today? Yeah, you can thank somebody somewhere who grew some cotton. Uh, down there, they had these huge fields. And while it used to be uh, picked by hand, uh, they would today, the big harvesters would do that. And then went down, uh, when we moved to North Dakota, they had big wheat fields. The wheat fields there, I mean, the harvesters were literally, the blades were about as wide as that widest pew would be. And they, we had farmers in the church, I think three and 4,000 acres, some of them had, of, of wheat to harvest. And they did it in a hurry. Uh, you had wheat harvest. But, but Maine, you talked about potatoes. I will never forget harvesting potatoes, you know, picking them in Aroostook County. Yes, indeed. Graduate of Prescott High School. Yeah, all right. Whoop, whoop, Wildcats. So, didn't there? Uh, yeah. So, uh, you know what? That's how I paid for my first car, was picking potatoes. I had a 1964 Chevy Bel Air blue four-door with a sick six-cylinder engine and uh, shocks that were absolutely broken. The thing floated down the road like this, ba-boing, ba-boing. My sisters loved to ride with me. They thought it was Six Flags. It was great, ba-boing, 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 well, like that. You know, so harvest. And as I think about Jesus' words here, and you know them so well, in Matthew chapter 9, it talks about the fact he saw the crowds and he had compassion on them, that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest. And there's three things, at least, I want you to remember from this. First of all, when you think about harvest, at harvest time, the stakes are high. If you ever work in a harvest, I mean, you know it, in two or three, maybe four weeks, your entire year paycheck comes in in what happens in those three or four weeks. You get it right, you get paid. You blow it, you're going to have a really tough winter. The stakes are really high. There's a sense of opportunity. Opportunity. It's this moment. Here it is. There's so much to be reaped, so much to be gained. Go big or go home broke. And when you know that the harvest has to be picked, I want you rearrange your priorities. Second thing about a harvest is that time is short. Very few harvests are year-round. Most of them have this little season, a window. Back in Prescott, they used to. I don't think they do anymore, but they used to shut down school for two weeks in September so you could go pick potatoes. Yeah? Do they still do that? Oh, they do some places? Yeah, good. No, some, yes, no, I'm getting both. Okay. All right, so I'm going to look for new experts over here. Do they still do that? Yeah. Uh, the time is short. There's a sense of urgency. I mean, they, you know, yes, it would be great to learn more about American history, and yes, it would be fascinating to study more about geography and, and home economics, you know. All those things are great, but there is a sense that the time is short. you got to do it now. There's no do-overs. There's no like, hey, can I get an extension on my paper? <laughs> you know, that does not happen when it's harvest time. At harvest time, it's time to get with the program. You never know when hail could strike. 
Now in potatoes, it's more usually frost that you had to worry about. When will the frost settle into the ground and actually begin to spoil? I mean, the, all the work of a year can be lost in just a couple of hours. There's a sense of urgency. A sense of urgency. I, I've been watching lately the uh, cold water cowboys. Has anybody seen cold water cowboys? Am I? Oh, two of us. Well, Dwight, you've been a cold water cowboy, so that makes sense, right? It's about these uh, guys in Newfoundland who have these uh, ships. They're doing seining, and they go out, and they chase around Lillian Radar, try to find these schools of fish. We saw one haul the other night. I think it was like a, over $100,000 in one haul of fish. But they've got to get out there. They've got to drop the seine at the right time. Everybody scrambles. When they identify that there's a, a school of fish, they've got to circle that thing. They drop the net. Out they go. The boat back here anchors it. They go all the way around this thing. They've got to catch it fast because those fish can turn on a dime. They can dive. They can go up, over, down. If you don't get it done, if in that moment of time you don't have a sense of urgency, you can lose it. But this crowd, we watched them. They were so stinking excited. I think they caught nearly 6,000 pounds. It was some crazy number. Of fish, and they had a, it must be 60,000 pounds, but it had a $100,000 paycheck one night. But a sense of urgency. They'd been sitting around laughing, cutting jokes, kind of punching each other in the arm, just hanging out like they do, and the ship's captain's up there. He's looking at the screen, he's paying attention, but everybody else is just kind of taking it easy, laying back, saying, okay, whatever, whatever, let's just kind of go with the flow. It's all good. And then there is this, everybody hit it. It's time to go. I mean, they scramble. They come up from below the deck. They come down on the rigging, and they're in on it. And if you don't get it done, if you don't get it that done in that moment, you could lose everything. There is this sense of urgency. So there's a the sense that the, the harvest is ripe and it's plentiful. There's a sense of great value. Then there's a sense of urgency, the sense that the time is really, really short, and now is the time for action. It's not time for sitting around. But then there's this other thought, and that's it. The workers are few. The workers are few. It is a time of responsibility. It's a time to do something. Not just talk, not just plan, not just strategize, but do something. Now, I think it's possible to have too many people picking potatoes in the same row. I think that can happen. If you're all bunched up on each other, that's not a good thing. But the reason they shut down school, the reason that people like me with no mechanical ability, <laughs> literally, and no agricultural degree could find a job and actually make money for two weeks is they just needed everybody to be involved. There was an opportunity for everyone to get their hands dirty. I mean, I saw little kids. I don't know how old you could be. Probably they've changed the laws now for the employment practices thing. But back when I was, I mean, moms brought their little kids along. You had little kids in there shaking the dirt off taters, throwing them in the baskets. I mean, it was everybody's involved. Everybody's doing what they need to do. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few, Jesus said. And it's a time of responsibility. It's a time to get involved. It's a time to do our part, to do what we can to help out. Now, no one expects the crop to harvest itself. No one ever went out and said, bad crop. You haven't come to the barn yet. Shame on you. No one ever said to the fish, hey, you haven't jumped in my boat yet. What's your problem? No one ever does that. There is a sense of responsibility that if I want the harvest in, I've got to go get it. If I want the fish in the boat, I've got to throw the net in. I've got to do the work. There's a sense of responsibility. It probably is not true for you. But I got to tell you, as I visit in churches and over the last several years, as I had a chance to work as a district superintendent and visit a different church every Sunday, I was shocked 
shocked at the lack of urgency. People said, well, we open the doors every Sunday. If people really wanted to know Jesus, they could come find us. We're here. Lights are on. You know, got the thermostat up. Just come on down. No sense of urgency. No sense of urgency. Urgency matters. And this, we better go now. trial run and so uh, Pastor Randy Forbes came to me and said oh that has to happen in this assembly or we don't do it till next year and so Pastor Randy and I were working on trying to get this queued up just right Randy you walk uh, you walk a little slower than I talk so I missed my timing but it wasn't your fault it was mine I just talked too fast we were talking about urgency it's supposed to go off right then man I missed that thing but anyway <laughs> hey you know what when the bell goes off you move you respond because you don't know in this case of uh, thank the Lord it was a false alarm the building's not burning down but you never know uh, my dad used to be the uh, high school principal here at Kingswood been the head of high school program and one of his assignments was to do the fire alarm and ladies you wouldn't have liked him he liked to do the fire alarm 30 minutes after everybody was kind of quote-unquote lights out gone to bed <laughs> now in those days ladies they wore rollers in their hair I don't think anybody does that anymore but there were some scary sights, people coming out of there in bathrobes and rollers on their head, all kinds of mechanical devices. Uh, you know, when it's harvest time, you have to move. And there has to be a sense of urgency. The reality is it's always harvest time in the kingdom. Today's the day of salvation, Jesus said. It's now. It's now. Reg Bibby does a lot of research work uh, with Christianity and spirituality in Canada. Dr. Reginald Bibby is a professor of sociology out in Lethbridge, Alberta. And uh, some of the things he discovered, for example, in 2001, 16% of people in Canada said they had no religious affiliation. So that's 16, what's that, just about one out of seven or so, uh, one out of eight. Uh, they said they had no religious affiliation. In 10 years, that number grew from 16% to 25%. One out of four Canadians say of no religion. They're not Sikh. They're not Buddhist. They're not Muslim. They're they're nothings or nuns. It's called. They're nuns. And uh, the sense that there's this growing spiritual darkness creeping across our country. Interesting. His research also revealed that 64 percent of Canadians said they were born in a Christian home, and regularly attended church when they were growing up. 64 percent. But listen to this. Today, 64 percent of Canadians do not attend church at all. By their admission in survey work, 64% of Canadians said, I don't attend church at all. 18% said, I attend church Christmas only. And only 18% said, I regularly attend church. Now, Christianity is more than attending church. I get that. And yes, I do know that it's possible to attend church and not be a Christian, to not be following Christ. But it does give us one measure, at least, of what's going on spiritually in this country. The truth is, the stats aren't much better in the U.S. You know, sometimes we think about that country maybe being more of a Christian nation. But uh, they did a survey of the most post-Christian cities in all of uh, USA. And they did a whole variety of assessments like where they pray, whether they believe the Bible, whether they attend church, uh, what they think about right and wrong, some of those questions. 
And of the most post-Christian cities in America, here are the top five. Albany, New York, 63% of the people identified in a pool of people as post-Christian. Like they're over that. That's so historical. Burlington, Vermont, 60%. Portland, Maine, 59%. Providence, Rhode Island, 56%. And Hartford, Connecticut, 54%. The top five post-Christian cities in U.S. of A. are all within one day's drive of our campus. So you don't have to go to China or Africa to find a mission field. It is all around us. And it's not just in big cities. Uh, it's not just somewhere else. It's people that you know. So what do we do in response? Jesus says you do two things. First of all, he says pray. Ask the Lord. Pray for the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. I, I've often thought that was kind of uh, flipped backwards. I, you know, I tend to want to go and then pray as I'm going kind of deal. But Jesus says pray first. Pray first. John Bunyan, who, as you will remember, wrote most of Pilgrim's Progress while imprisoned, imprisoned for his religious convictions, right? <laughs> Great writing studio there for him. Uh, he said this, you can do more than pray after you pray. But you can't do more than pray until you've prayed. I'll back that up and go slower because the first time I read it, I was like, what? <laughs> you can do more than pray after you've prayed. But you can't do more than pray until you've prayed. Until you've said, God, what are you up to? What is it you want me to do? What are you asking me to do? Uh, I wish I had one, and maybe somebody here has one. I should have tried this a little earlier. Anybody have a tuning fork? Like Miss Elizabeth, other ones around here? No. Uh, I used to have a tuning fork. From uh, They call him the piano man, Dan Mullen. Maybe you see him around the building. Dan tried to teach me one time how to tune pianos. And they got this red cord you put in to kind of damper the various strings. And you had this handle thing that fit just correctly over that on the nut there that you could turn this wrench thing. But the most important thing in a piano tuner's kit was the tuning fork. The tuning fork. Because you could replace with other, you could improvise on the felts, like you could take old sweat socks or something, I suppose, and stick it in the strings to keep them from ringing. And, and you might have found a, an, another tool out in the shed. Someone might have had a tool that just fit that accidentally. Maybe been all right. But the one thing you couldn't get by with if you're going to be a real piano tuner is you had to have a tuning fork. Now, today, all you who are guitar players, you have those on your iPhones, right? <laughs> you just hit the tone, bing, A440. But in those days, that was it. And the idea of striking the tuning fork was, was not to, to, to adjust it. You struck the tuning fork so that every other instrument around it lined up with perfect pitch, with A440. See, prayer isn't about me moving God. It's not about tuning God. It's not about adjusting his will. Prayer is about aligning myself with his will. It's about praying until I get his heart and I see what he sees and I come into alignment and, and congruence with what God is up to in the world. His priorities become my priorities and his sense of urgency becomes my sense of urgency. And when that happens, the second part is really easy. He said, go. Now it says, pray that the Lord of the harvest will send forth workers into his harvest field. And the people he said it to, he turns around to them in chapter 10 and says, okay, now Go. Go. It says he'd sent those 12. He, he, he brings them together. He gives them all these coaching instructions. Uh, maybe we should have people memorize chapter 10, Dr. Smith. Maybe that would be like your final exam. Can you memorize chapter 10? Because it's the instructions of what it means to go, to be a sent person. 
in the kingdom of God. All these kind of practical ways that you go. But there's one phrase that's repeated three times. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Chapter 10, three different times. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Why? Because fear is the most significant factor in why people don't go. Fear. But what will happen? What will I say? He said, well, when you come before those authorities, don't worry about what you're going to say. Spirit will give you words. Don't worry about what you say. Go, 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 go. Do not fear. Go, go. I, uh, when I think about going, there's a historical uh, little note I keep around here. Let me see if I can find it. It's about a guy named Adam Crooks. Adam Crooks was 23 years old. He went to a, a, a convention, a, a church leaders gathering in uh, upstate New York. And while they were there, they received a letter from people down in North Carolina. This is back in 1847. They received a letter saying, we're down here, we're Quakers, we're people of conscience, we oppose slavery, but somebody needs to come and help us because there are no preachers who will stand up. These were lay people who said, we need someone to come down and help us speak out against slavery. So they sent this letter requesting that somebody, somebody would go. So in a room much like this with a gathering of people not much larger than this, they said, well, let's stop and let's pray. And so they did. They bowed their heads. They sought the Lord. They began to pray and say, God, what do you want us to do? How do we respond? What needs to happen next? And finally, after that time of prayer, a 23-year-old. Anybody here 23 or older? Anybody almost 23? There you go. All close. All right. 23-year-old Adam Crooks stood up in that assembly. And it says the, the, the people who saw it that day said his face was pale his hands were trembling. Because understand where he's going. 1847, he's going into the heart of slavery country. 1847. And he says, sustained by your prayers, I will go. And he did. He was joined by one other companion eventually. And from 1847 to 1851, he preached the gospel almost every day somewhere. He stood up in public, preached the gospel, and talked about believing in a God who sets people free spiritually. And if there's spiritual freedom, there will be political and, and, and economic freedom that God wants to set the captives free. He was charged with sedition against the state, which carried with it a death penalty. That was finally what they charged them with. Before that, he'd been beaten. He was imprisoned. Uh, one of the other guys who was with him was actually whipped. And they were finally tried, found guilty, and said, if you show yourselves in the state again, you will be killed. But for four years, he ministered under that. One of the ways he, he wrote about it, he said, slavery was ruled with a, a rod of iron and a knife of steel. He wrote, by threats and mobbings and rewards offered for arrest, they waged war on us. And what's the word? Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Four years later, he returned. When he did, he left behind six churches that he'd planted in four years. 48 months, he planted six churches. There's a goal for you, right? And 500 people who had stepped out to join that movement to become part of it. Almost every day, they saw people saved for four years. Because first, they prayed. They prayed. And then they said, God, who will go? And he said, here am I. Now, we prayed for people who were going. Dr. Smith, what an amazing ministry of prayer. Thank you, sir. And we prayed. We laid hands on these people. They're going to go. And some of us sat here saying, yeah, but I've got to wait a year. Or I've got to wait two years. Or in Zach's case, Zach Otto's got to wait three more years. You know, you got that kind of thing going on. I've got to wait. I've got to tell you, no, you don't. 
No, you don't, because in a few weeks, we're going to close campus. I think on uh, May the 10th, is it, at 5 o'clock, they lock the doors on the dormitory. Don't try to get back in. Don't try to sneak through a window. It's over. This year is done. But when you walk up this campus, never forget that when you walk up this campus, you are entering the mission field. And everyone in this room, you will go someplace this summer. Maybe it'll be home. Maybe you'll go work in a camp like Drake's going to do. Uh, some of you, you'll take a job. Uh, you'll be working next side by side with people. Uh, for some of you, you'll be at home with family members who don't know Jesus. But every single one of us will have opportunities this summer to share the gospel. Every single one of us. And it's not about graduating. It's not about getting a job in ministry. It's not about a career. It's ultimately about God's calling. Pray the Lord of the harvest that he will send out workers into his harvest field. And when you pray that prayer, don't be surprised to discover that you're the answer to that prayer. With a sense of urgency, you seize the opportunity and you make a difference for Jesus. What I want to do in closing, and then we're going to move into time of communion, is this. I want us to think about one person. One person. It may be a family member. It may be an old call, a high school classmate. It may be somebody you know you're going to go back to work with. It may be a neighbor. One person who doesn't know Jesus. I mentioned Dr. Bibby's studies, and he, uh, he surveyed unchurched young Canadians, people in your age group, people who, who were not involved in church at all. And he asked them this question, how willing would you be for someone to share with you what they believe about Christianity? How willing would you be? 89% of unchurched young Canadians said, I'd be willing to listen. Could it be that they're more willing to listen than we are to share? I want you to think about the one person right now. Just bow your heads. Ask God to give you one face, one name. And when that one person comes to mind, I want you to stand. That person that you know that needs Jesus. I know there's hundreds, maybe dozens that you know, but what's the one person that comes to mind? Could be a neighbor, could be somebody who used to be in your youth group, you haven't seen them in two or three years, but you know they still live in that town. Could be a relative. Who's the one? When you think about who that one is, I want you to see them clearly. And on the count of three, I just want you to say their first name. One, two, three. Lord, you've heard our prayer what I'm saying, what we're saying, Lord, is send us. And that chorus of names that we just sang, that's our harvest. The time is now. The workers are so few. Lord, would you send us into your harvest field? And I pray, God, this fall when we come back that we'll hear story after story after story of Kingswood students and staff who were not afraid who seized the opportunity on a plane or on a train and, and shared their story and, and, and asked about what God's doing in that person's life, asked where they were on their spiritual journey. In that place of work or in that home or in our old youth group setting, Lord, we'll be bold for you. We will not be afraid. Uh, we will go. And Lord, as we go, we trust you. You are the Lord of the harvest. We are your workers. It's your field. So here we are, Lord. 
Here we are, Lord. Send us. You'll be seated. Dr. Smith's going to come lead us in communion.